I'm Rex Salisbury, and this is the Cambrian FinTech Podcast. On this show, we talk to the founders, operators, and investors who are shaping the future of financial services. Well, we just had a big banking crisis. How might we do things differently next time? I've invited John Cochran onto the show to discuss this very subject. So John is one of my favorite people to learn from about how the banking ecosystem works today, how it's broken, and how we might do things differently in the future. He is currently a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute and previously a professor of finance at the University of Chicago. He's the author of numerous papers, including Towards a Run-Free Financial System, which we'll discuss at length today, as well as a popular blog, The Grumpy Economist. We'll share links to both in the show notes. In this episode, we're going to talk about how you could stop banking crises forever. That's right. Permanently stop banking crises. I know. That seems crazy. So how? The answer is narrow banking. It's an idea that's been around since the 1930s. It essentially means that a bank cannot lend out its deposits. Those deposits have to be fully reserved and backed, usually by something very safe like government treasuries. That's why it's also known as fully reserved banking. If you know anything about banking, and you probably think this is an absolutely crazy idea and a very bad idea, for example, if banks cannot lend out deposits, who's going to provide credit? There are a lot of objections to narrow banking, some very reasonable, some not. My goal in this conversation is not to convince you that narrow banking is the answer, but instead to invite you to consider that some of the core principles about how our banking system operates are not some sort of divine or natural law, but instead are specific policy choices that we made at precise moments in time, rightly or wrongly, and that we could change if we wanted to. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode, and I think you'll learn a lot, even if you don't agree with everything that we cover. The very first thing I want to do is, first of all, say, John, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here. I'm really excited for this conversation because you have spent a lot of time thinking about risk in the banking system and hold some very kind of interesting and important views, especially given everything that's gone on with SVB and the fallout following the close of SVB. So my goal for this conversation is to allow our audience, which is founders, operators, investors, and other folks working in and around financial technology to better understand some of the core underpinnings of our financial system and the assumptions we have about how things operate and why they operate the way they do. Where I want to start first is a little bit about understanding your view on the banking system and why you think the most important thing is understanding the ways in which short-term debt is both pervasive and also dangerous. And from there, we'll jump into specifically how that relates to the two most recent banking crises, the Great Recession and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. The crucial feature that makes a crisis or run different from other things is short-term debt, or more precisely, I mean, think of a bank deposit. It's a liability of a bank, but it's special because unlike, say, your venture investors or your long-term bondholders or just your stockholders, the people who give you money in the form of deposits have the right to get their money back at face value, no discount, first come, first serve, anytime they want it. And should you fail to deliver it immediately, you have to declare bankruptcy. You're instantly out of business. And the same applies to overnight debt. You know, short-term debt is the same way. 
So that really is the crucial ingredient of crises and runs is this circumstance, as we saw with SVB, when all the short-term debt holders, all the run-prone liabilities say, give me back my money right now. And of course, you don't have it right there. <laughs> and, uh, yep. and down we go. People use the words financial instability, financial crisis, blah, 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 much too loosely. It is not a crisis that somebody somewhere loses money on some investment. <laughs> the crisis is, is when there is this run. In fact, during the dot-com bubble, we lost trillions of shareholder equity. Painlessly. Not to the shareholders. Painless, but a lot less painless yeah, yeah. Then the similar level of kind of equity compression following the collapse of 2008 of the bank. Yeah. When you bought, you know, a ridiculous dot com at wildly too much money and then it goes down, what can you do? You go home, you have a whiskey, you, you kick the dog maybe, but you cannot run and get your money back and cause a bankruptcy of the underlying institution, which is what you can do in a bank run. So it's it really, my friend and colleague, Doug Diamond, who just got a Nobel Prize, I think put it nicely that... Financial crises are always and everywhere problems of short-term debt. And that's the central problem. That's the poison in the well of financial crises. Absolutely. And then is it safe to say that basically without short-term debt, you cannot have banking crises? That's pretty close. And again, and we should say regular deposits, you're in my checking accounts, have not really been a problem because the government guaranteed them. We have deposit insurance. So we have much less incentive to go run because we know we don't have to get there before the other guy to get our money back. That has its own problems, but that really hasn't been the source of financial crises since the government put that in. It's been the source of banks having incentives to take too much risk, and, and the government has to come bail us out more than we should, but it hasn't been the uh, run. The uninsured deposits in the case of SVB and the sort of more complicated overnight repo wholesale funding by banks, short-term commercial paper, and even governments are funded relatively short-term. Rolling over short-term debt to fund long-term illiquid projects is something that happens everywhere and causes crises wherever it happens. That's exactly right. No, absolutely. And then we'd love to talk about both the Great Recession and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and understand both what was different about those crises, but also what was similar. Yeah, they were quite different. In fact, Silicon Valley Bank was much, much simpler. <laughs> and that's, in my view, shocking that after 10 years, after this massive amount of extra regulation, our regulatory system missed the Econ 101 first week banking crisis, which is what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. There was no toxic derivatives. There was no strange mortgage-backed securities. There was no off-balance sheet entities, no special purpose vehicles. This was just plain vanilla, took an enormous amount of uninsured deposits and used them to fund long-term treasury and mortgage-backed securities. Then interest rates went up, the value of those securities fell, the depositors realized that if they all went at one time, the bank would be insolvent, so they all went at one time. It's like the simplest thing in the world to understand, and yet our vast regulatory apparatus was completely blind to this possibility, to the point that the Fed's stress tests weren't even asking what happens if interest rates go up. It's just unbelievable to me. I saw this tweet from Will Diamond, which I believe you also saw, talking about the Fed 2022 stress test scenario and what sort of interest rate they contemplated. They said, what do you do if interest rates go down? Now, I don't want to criticize too much here because 
these are great people. I mean, I know a lot of people at the Fed, they're really smart, but this just tells you that as an institutional mechanism, this idea that the regulators will see risks is broken. A year and a half, well anticipated. We all know interest rates are going up, and yet the system was unable to see this one. That's what we do about bank runs now. Under our regulatory system, we allow banks enormous amounts of leverage, lots of short-term funding to fund long-term illiquid liabilities. We count on the regulators to make sure they don't take too much risk, and it just fell apart. Basically, with SVB, they have a bunch of uninsured depositors. They buy something that's very, very safe, government treasuries, but lock in at 10 years. Interest rates go up. The value of those treasuries fall down. Now they're insolvent. 2008, it's a very different story, right? Like people are buying something they presume to be safe. Maybe talk through a little bit about that, how that's different. Yeah. 2008 was more complicated, and it was not so much a run of deposits. In fact, deposits ran to the big banks in 2008 and out of the sort of shadow banking system. It was really a run on repo. So overnight repurchase agreements is how a lot of corporations held cash because they didn't want to hold cash like many people did in Silicon Valley Bank. Reports of corporations with hundreds of millions of dollars stuck in a checking account. Well, back in the good old days of 2007, corporations didn't do that because they would lose a lot of interest on it. Yeah. And overnight repo, there's some mechanics around collateral and lending against collateral and some other things. But for listeners, is it fair to say it's essentially a way for big institutions to lend to each other, whether banks to each other or corporations to banks, et cetera. But it's all usually overnight, yeah. It's overnight or a week at most, but it's, if you're a corporation, it's a way to park your cash that gives you a little bit of higher interest in a slightly riskier endeavor. And what happened was, all of a sudden, people started to worry about it and said, no, we don't want that anymore. We want to actually put our money into banks, not into the overnight repo. And then, of course, that caused a run because the securities that were backing the overnight repo, they they couldn't sell them all instantly. And boom, that was the system that really fell apart in 2008. Yep, yep. So similar mechanics, you know, with SVB, you have a founder who has maybe $10 million sitting in a checking account. They hear something about SVB. Their friends tell them SVB is at risk. They're like, oh. I'm going to, like, from my mobile phone, move all this money instantly. And people are doing that because they're worried about the interest rate risk that SVB is bearing. 2008, you have people worried about the credit risk of these mortgage-backed securities, which may be pervasive throughout the system, and you don't really know who's holding what. And so instead of it being a startup founder with $10 million, it's maybe a corporate treasurer or someone within the finance department of another bank doing the same thing the founder did this year, which is calling in all of their money to try and make it as safe as quickly as possible. Now, the big difference so far is that SVB and Credit Suisse were isolated. We're pulling our money out of this bank, putting it into other banks. In 2008, it became a systemic run because people said, instead of saying, I'm going to pull out of this mm-hmm. overnight repo with you know Lehman Brothers and put it in overnight repo with somebody else, they basically took it out of everywhere. And there comes a minute, a moment, where you don't trust any of the banks because you don't know where the risks are. And that's really bad, right? It took us six, seven years, actually maybe eight years to recover to full employment after that, versus employment still going up, at least outside of the tech world. Yeah. Right. And so far, only two or three banks, I think, have gone under. It has not, to this general, oh, where is this risk? I'm going to pull out of everything and stuff it in my mattress has not happened. Most of the banks aren't in that extreme of a circumstance as SVB was. 
are relying on uninsured deposits and in quite so mismatched on their duration. It's not clear how many banks are in trouble. We still may get to this moment. There's a big difference between an isolated run and a systemic run. The systemic run being where we don't really know, and so we grab our money from everywhere. Yep. But this is where I want to touch on, which I think you're getting to next, which is, is it actually isolated? And there was a paper that came out that showed about 190 banks are potentially insolvent as a result of this rate risk. It's almost in some ways we're lucky SVB failed first and was so different as opposed to having a bunch of other banks suddenly come to light that they're at risk and us potentially having a more systemic run. We were lucky in 2007 that Bear Stearns went first. (laughs) So we all had six months to put our affairs in order, make sure you have adequate equity, equity borrowing capacity, your risk management's in place. Wasn't it nice in 2007, 2008 that we had all that time, actually from the August 2007 hedge fund blip and then the Bear Stearns in early 2008? Mm. (laughs) Good thing we had all those warnings. It's always easy ex post to kind of expostulate, but it's also an yeah, important reminder that there really was a period of time where you could have made decisions and a lot of people didn't necessarily make, make adjustments. So we talked about how bank runs, short-term debt are at the transmission mechanism of all the crises. So the next question is like, how might it be different? And you're the author of a paper called Towards a Run-Free Financial System, where you espouse support for an idea that is called narrow banking, sometimes known as the Chicago plan, which is first put forward in the 1930s. So talk to me about how it might be different and then specifically what does narrow banking mean? I think this is the moment to start thinking about fundamental reforms. What we have is a boat that leaks and we put patches on it and then it leaks some more and we put more patches on it. And there comes a moment where you say, yeah, you know, this whole plan isn't working. What we've done is you get a run and how do you stop a run? There's only one way to stop a run. The government guarantees the creditors. Guys, I'll give you your money so you don't have to run to the bank to get it. And, you know, put me in charge of the Fed. When the run comes, it's what I'm doing. (laughs) Bail out the creditors. But that gives you a real incentive to risk-taking. If you're a bank or if you're a depositor and you know your deposits are guaranteed, you don't have to worry if the bank's good or not. You just go for the highest interest rate. You're a bank and you know there's this guarantee coming, you can just go take all sorts of risk because you got the deposits coming anyway. Well, so we throw regulators at it, and the regulators are supposed to stop you from taking risks. It's sort of like you get to go to Las Vegas with my credit card, but you got to follow the rules. And if we back way up, there was actually a period where the Fed didn't regulate banking too much, and it kind of was. There were the wildcat banking crisis in the 1860s where all these banks, they were actually all issuing their own currencies. They weren't really... And then there were bank runs all the time and the Fed stepped in and their approach was not narrow banking. It was basically the system we live with today. So that's the choice we made in the 1930s was to step by step by step, guarantee more and more and more of the bank's deposits, the bank's sources of funds, and then throw more and more and more regulators at it to try to get them to not take risks. And I think we just saw with SVB and with Credit Suisse, that is not working. It's inherently not working. It's time to think about doing things differently because this is not working. Okay, so what else could we do? (laughs) The other system is, I don't like to call it narrow banking. Let's call it narrow deposit taking. So if you have a run-prone liability, like a deposit, you got to back that up 100% with reserves at the Fed or short-term treasuries. Now, those deposits cannot run, they cannot fail. If people want their money back, good, you can give them their money back instantly because it's just reserves at the Fed. 
we've turned everything into a giant treasury money market fund with great transactions. It's a problem with current money market funds. They're not really good for instantly wiring money around. Now we've solved runs forever. Now, if banks want to invest in something like lending money to early stage venture (laughs) investments or holding some commercial real estate on the books, they can't get their money for doing that from regular deposits, uninsured deposits, short-term debt. They got to get their money for doing that by issuing equity or by borrowing long-term equity and long-term debt. Both sources of funds where if there's problems on the asset side, the values of those can go down. We don't have to pay you back instantly with the amount of money you gave in. If the earnings are low, the stock price goes down. So now we have a financial system that requires next to no regulation, just a little bit to make sure you're not sneaking out deposits, you know, fraud, we don't want that sort of thing. But next to no regulation, we don't need regulators looking at your risks the same way we don't need regulators looking at, say, Tesla's risks or Twitter's risks. Why not? It's just think of the world we live in, that the safest assets on the planet, long-term treasuries, need an army of regulators to look at how much risk you're taking. That's crazy. Whereas at the same time, you know, Tesla or Twitter's cash flow stream, there's no regulator looking at that. Why? Because it's financed by equity. There's no regulator looking at the risks of individual venture-backed companies because they're funded with equity, and equity is not a run-prone asset. It's a very simple idea, right? It's If you want a safe store of value, you basically have to put it in government treasuries directly or, or indirectly through the Fed, and that's safe. I think it's pretty consensus among people, among economists and others, that that does solve the problem of bank runs. Yes, and private sector financial crises forever, permanently. And you brought up the 19th century. I think that's a great example. There used to be what banks that each issued their own currencies. <laughs> and what do we have? We had banking crises over and over again. What do we do about it? The government said, uh-uh, no more. The U.S. Treasury will issue all of the currency. You can't print money anymore, dear banks. And, and what do we do? We ended banknote crises forever. Yep. Now, people said, oh, how are the banks going to fund their loans if they can't print money? Yeah, they seem to, you know, (laughs) they fund it with deposits, long-term debt, and equity. We're basically doing the same thing with 21st century money. I think that the allure of narrow banking is that it's very simple and that people agree it works. It stops bank runs. But then this opens up a whole host of criticisms, some of which I think are, are very reasonable and founded, some of which are not as reasonable and more unfounded. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on what are the most common criticisms of narrow banking, what criticisms you think the critics believe are the most important ones, and which criticisms you think are the ones that are most important. I'm thinking here around, oh, you'll make credit more expensive. Okay, sure, you regulate short-term debt in this way, but it's just going to pop up in some sort of shadow banking sector, which will be even harder. Oh, there's not going to be enough safe money supply anymore. There are several of these. So I'm curious to hear your frame on what you think are the most common criticisms and why they may or may not be be true. You got three of the big four, (laughs) and I think they're all wrong, although they are common criticisms. The fourth one is the one the Fed invokes. I think the Fed has shamefully stopped narrow banking from emerging. People have tried to start narrow banks, Mm -hmm. and you would think the Fed would say, hallelujah, here's a gold star for systemic non-riskiness. Please get us out of this mess. Instead, the Fed has denied the master accounts denied them access to reserves. Yeah. And specifically, we're here talking about Jamie McAndrew, who was an ex 
employee at the Fed who tried to start the narrow bank, TNB, and the Fed, to your point, denied him getting a master account. And I think there's not really a ruling because it wasn't a legal precedent. It was just something they wrote. I can't remember where they wrote it. But there's, they said the risk of the narrow bank was actually that it was too safe and that deposits would flood into it during a period of instability. Yeah. Which, that's kind of a crazy statement. But I think it hints at a more reasonable criticism, which is, unfortunately, we live in today's world where banking is not safe. During periods of uncertainty, people will crave something that's very safe. But migrating from one world to the other can create a lot of collateral damage in the process. You mentioned three other fallacies. One, that there wouldn't be enough credit or it would be more expensive. Merton Miller, the author of the Modigliani-Miller theorem, often said that you slice a pizza up differently, it's still the same amount of pizza. (laughs) We still have the same amount of savings going into the same amount of investment. So how you relabel the slices of the pizza makes no difference to the total amount of savings and the total amount of investment. It takes a little thinking to get that straight, and that's exactly right. Banks that issue much more equity, that equity would be very, very safe. So the cost of that capital would be like the costs of long-term debt. So the banks scream, oh, the cost of capital would be too high. The cost of capital would be like the cost of long-term debt. Bank stock, think of putting stock in a company whose assets are a diversified portfolio of long-term loans. That's an incredibly safe company. So the cost of capital, that is very low. And I think the bank's objection actually hints at why it's an unfair objection is that risk reward is like the fundamental premise of all financial markets. And so if something is expensive, it's because it is risky. There is potentially a reason. It is potentially true that interest rates on some kinds of lending might go up. Why? The banks now benefit from a lot of government subsidy in Mm -hmm. that every time things go bad, the government comes in and throws money at it. So if we want to subsidize lending, let's just do it on budget and send people checks rather than do it by throwing money at the banks once every 10 years. But even that one, people say, oh, banks get these deposits at low values and they turn that around and give you low interest rates. Really? When was the last time you thought a big oligopolistic bank was so kind-spirited that if it could get subsidized deposits, it would use those to lower interest rates on loans? So there not being enough safe money, we got $30 trillion of government debt. <laughs> I think that can back all the safe money anybody wants. It's possibly true in the 1800s. Yep. You needed to securitize private mortgages to provide safe assets. But one nice side effect of the massive amount of government debt is that we have no shortage of government debt as safe assets. Okay. I think that's key, actually. It's like a pretty small distinction, but in the 19th century, money could not move instantly, digitally, anywhere, anytime. In the 20th, and definitely now in the 21st century, as we have FedNow, RTP, other you know, wires have been around for decades, money can move anywhere, anytime, instantly. And that's fundamentally different. You don't necessarily need to outsource the creation of public money to private institutions. On the government debt point, that's an easy one, too. There is about $20 trillion-ish of bank deposits. There's north of $30 trillion in government debt held at various maturities. So just their first-order approximation, like, there are enough safe assets that can move digitally, instantly, anywhere, anytime, today. That was not the case 100 years ago. A, debt-to-GDP was lower, so there weren't as many government assets. B, how do you move them? That's like a big question. You probably have to rely on banking intermediaries to do correspondent banking, and it takes weeks to do net settlement. None of that is true today. So we're now in this new world where value can move instantly. There is enough safe assets. Go ahead. 
And to your point, it's not clear we need anywhere near as much safe assets as you needed back then. Yep. If you can sell stocks nearly instantly, then you can hold your money in stocks and turn it to cash when you need it. You don't need to sit on this mountain of safe assets. Yep. So our current systems allow liquidity without fixed value safety. And that also contributes to how the system can work. So how do we get there? Yep. I think the transition is the big question because the French Revolution was very bloody, the glorious revolution, like less so. So how does this massive dislocation not lead to huge collateral damage? I think the answer is quite simple. Don't try to reform the old system. Just let the new one grow. Let the weeds grow. Mm -hmm. If I were in charge of this, I would offer the financial system, look, you can keep going the way you have now. You can have your Dodd-Frank huge banks with your hundreds of millions of dollars a year compliance department. Or if you choose to start up as a a narrow deposit taker, I don't like the word narrow bank, or an equity financed bank, great, you can do that too. And you won't have to fill out all this regulation. So let the new system grow. And what you offer them is you don't need all the massive regulation. You can be nimble. You can be a new fintech company. Just you can't issue deposits unless they're backed 100%. Let that new system grow. Don't do what the Fed do and stop Jamie McAndrew and company. Let them in. Let the current big banks operate the way they do. But if you have massive amounts of equity, massive amounts of long-term debt, you're exempt from all the regulations because you can't cause a problem. I think if we just simply let the weeds grow, the new system would gradually take over without us needing to try to reform the current system. Got it. And I think that's a great point. And it's interesting to talk about today because to some extent, this is starting to happen. Consumers or individuals are voting with their feet. Founders of tech companies pulled their money out of SVB, are now spreading around their dollars to multiple accounts. One of the places, both startup founders, but lots of folks at corporate treasuries around the country are now starting to put more money into things that kind of look, function, and feel like narrow banks, but are not called narrow banks. And I like your distinction of narrow banking versus narrow deposit taking. Now, there is a danger here. We are moving out of the banks, but there is a temptation, and you need some regulation because you can recreate 19th century wildcat banks. A fintech company will be very tempted to issue something that looks like deposits. You can come give us your money. You can get your money back anytime you want. We're going to go invest it in something or other. We're not really a bank. You know, just skirt what's a bank. And then that thing can have runs too. And in fact, we saw this not with fintech companies, but with crypto companies, which in some ways, many of them were wildcat banks of the 21st century. Exactly. Tether, for example, the idea of a stable coin is a 19th century bank. Now, it would be fine. If what they were doing, if the stable coin was invested in short-term treasuries or reserves, and it was simply a crypto implementation of a money market mutual fund, that would be fine. Unfortunately, (laughs) who knows what those assets were or what they were worth. So what we've recreated is the run-prone liability, promise of fixed conversion into who knows what assets. That, you got to stop that. Yep. So you do need a little bit of regulation if you're going to issue something that looks like deposits. First come, first serve, peg to the dollar, come and get it. And that's actually, you know, a problem in our regulatory architecture is that the Fed doesn't have authority right now to do that. So we need to stop that poison in the well, stop that run-prone liability from migrating out of banks into unregulated places. And so in terms of how we're transitioning to this world, 
A trend in just the last few weeks, as people have looked for safety, has been people moving into money market funds. And money market funds, to some extent, based on this reverse repo facility that the Fed created in 2019, behave almost like synthetic narrow banks. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on that trend. Well, there's two parts to that. One is, this happened before in 1980. <laughs> Interest rates went sky high. At the time, bank deposit rates were fixed by regulation. Mm -hmm. And so money was pouring out of the banking system into money market funds, which were invented in order to help you hold short-term treasuries. And that's when Regulation Q was abolished and banks got to pay interest on deposit. Now, why are, are, is money flowing out of the banking system? Not just some of it is because people are realizing how huh, uninsured deposits might actually be uninsured. Mm -hmm. So if you put them in a money market fund that's backed by treasuries, it's safe no matter the size of it. I don't really understand why money market funds don't offer more transaction services. I have a money market fund with Vanguard and it's a pain in the butt to get, the, it is. <laughs> to, you know, to write a check. <laughs> they are. I got to send it to my bank, wait a day and then write a check. Why can't Vanguard just wire it to wherever I want to go? So certainly what I would hope we would see is money market funds that offer better transaction services. The narrow bank, yep. money market fund with good transaction services. Great. Maybe that will be the secret to doing it. And this is where I maybe can lend a little bit of a fintech perspective on why those things don't exist at scale, because they actually do exist. <laughs> There's a company called Gico that's partnered with a bunch of different corporate treasury solutions, as well as as a direct consumer offering where you can sign up at Gico.io, get an account with a debit card, and put your money in, and all that money is then invested directly into treasuries. And every time you swipe your debit card, it actually sells off some treasuries, and that's it. That's so your whole transactional banking on top of, you know, treasuries exists. But there's been a problem, which is consumers don't care very much because if you think about it, you, you get kind of three things, right? You get extreme safety, yield when there are periods of yield, and then then convenience. Well, a bank provides the same convenience or more convenience because all the infrastructure is already built. Yield, well, there hasn't been yield in ten years, so kind of who cares about that? And then extreme safety, that's the third thing. Well, no one was worried about anything. So now there is a period where people do care about several of these things, and potentially that will be a tailwind, but consumers are probably the slowest to react, whereas corporate treasurers, startup founders are more likely to be more responsive. Yeah, because we still do have deposit insurance up to 250 yep. grand. So consumers really have no reason to go there, except for if we go to a period of higher interest rates and the banks still refuse, I think Chase is still paying me 0.01%. <laughs> yeah. So then that, that will force the banks to start paying a little higher interest rates. Now, <laughs> the banks may be in trouble if they have to start paying higher interest rates on deposits. We'll see how that goes. Critics of narrow banking will say, oh, this will make credit very, very expensive to certain players and have all these other side effects. I think there's a criticism of the current state of affairs we don't really talk about, which is it's incredibly expensive that banks don't pass on interest to consumers, right? There's 20 trillion of deposits that pay the average rate is something like 20 bips or less even today, which in a high rate environment, that's billions and billions of dollars going to banks. And when I say billions, 200 to 300, 400 billion dollars subsidizing kind of the current state of affairs. And you're like, sure, maybe people don't need like, you know, better interest on their like thousand dollars. I'd be like, but why do banks get, <laughs> you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of interest as opposed to consumers and businesses? I think this is a great example because turn it around. So we just saw that banks that get high interest rates on their investments don't pass it on to depositors. Why would you think that banks who get low interest rates on their deposits would pass it on into lower lending <laughs> rates? <laughs> 
Great point. You would say maybe because they operate in more competitive environments and the deposit side is a little more sticky, which I think bears some truth, but there certainly is they're resistant to pass on savings in any ways and would rather just pull it into profits in-house. Well, great. This has been so helpful, I think, in understanding a little bit of like the prior state of the world in terms of how we ended up with the system we're in now and then maybe how we start to think about a migration towards a new and different system. Although I won't hold my breath and I'm sure you won't either because it's it didn't happen before, probably won't happen now. Well, what you just said, I think, is a point worth remembering. People aren't dumb. (laughs) How did we get where we are? It's kind of natural to keep patching the boat the way we patched it. In a crisis, what's going to happen is you're going to bail out a larger set of creditors to keep them from running. And then you're going to promise that, oh, we'll expand the regulation so that this doesn't happen again. And over and over, that's how we do things. On a patch the boat system, that's the natural way to patch the boat. And it takes some guts to say, we need to sink this boat and build a new one. <laughs> yeah. And that's what's happening now, of course. What you hear from Washington is, oh, we just need to expand the regulations. Now, it's so obvious that the current regulatory architecture completely failed to see the simplest possible thing. Understanding that we got here in kind of a natural patch the boat system, I think, is helpful, but also helpful to see, you know, now is the end. We got to really try another way. Yeah, absolutely. And that's my goal for this conversation. I hope people have really enjoyed and gotten and learned some things. Maybe some of the listeners are more sympathetic to the ideas of narrow banking now than they were before. But I hope at least everyone has learned a little bit more about how our current financial system exists and operates, considering some of the kind of the first principles underpinning it that maybe you didn't even think about before. And we don't have to force it. Let me emphasize that point. Just let it emerge. Now, the Fed doesn't want to do that because it threatens the profits of the existing banking system, I think, fundamentally. And they want to keep the existing banks alive. But just let it emerge. You don't have to reform the current system. And I think that's an interesting thing, too, because I think there's this criticism of people who support the idea of narrow banking or a run-free financial system. It's like, oh, those are crazy radicals who want to destroy everything. And here you're saying, literally, don't do anything. Just like maybe this will become a thing on its own because we've been patching the boat so long that we'll actually just see these sorts of solutions start to emerge. And we actually have a little bit with people putting more money in money market funds. Now, it's been just a couple of weeks. Yes. Who knows where that will go over five or 10 years, but maybe we'll end up closer to a system that resembles this than the one we currently live in. You are gambling with the government's money. So the incentive to run a big bank and everybody knows that when the next crisis comes, we're all going to get bailed out. That incentive does remain there. So yep. it really is, could we this time, at least last time, 2008, they had the decency to say, yep. we're going to bail everybody out right and left, but trust us, we're going to fix this. And yep. we did it with the Dodd-Frank Act. Yeah, It didn't work, but at least they had the decency to try. Yep. And I'm a little appalled that both the 2020 bailouts, which were massive and no one talked about them, and yep. this case... We're not really talking about how are we going to put the moral hazard genie back in the bottle other than just we'll add more rules. The rules are so complicated. That's what's got us into trouble. Everyone was checking the boxes, the rules. Silicon Valley Bank fit the rules. Lehman Brothers fit the rules the day it went under. The rules are actually getting in the way because you're not allowed to look holistically. If, If you check the capital requirements box rules, you're good to go. So adding more rules is the natural idea, and it's just not going to work. 
Man, there's a bunch. There's a lot of other stuff I'd love to talk. We haven't even talked <laughs> about the fact that interest rates or interest expenses tax deductible, which is another huge subsidy to debt capital versus equity capital. But I think that'll really make people's head spins, and we've probably done enough already. So <laughs> there is a tendency of our government to simultaneously subsidize and regulate things. <laughs> yeah, all over the place. So we say short-term debt is bad because it causes financial crisis, and we regulate against its use, and then we subsidize it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> On that very exciting note, <laughs> happy to, to wrap things up. Let's hope we don't lose this moment to rethink things again. Let's not put a good crisis to waste. And hopefully the solution is we don't have to do anything and we can gradually move towards a safer banking ecosystem. And hopefully for folks listening, they, they learned a lot about just some new lenses to think about the ecosystem we live with today. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fascinating. I'll be sure to link to your paper in the show notes. I'll also be sure to put up some of your social and also your blog, Grumpy Economist, so that folks who want to continue to follow the work you do can do so. But other than that, just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Great interview. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you really enjoyed this conversation with John and at least learned a lot about some of the ways in which our banking system operates. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear other content like this in the future, please hit the subscribe button. Other than that, thanks again for joining us and we'll catch you next time.